0: So as I read this, excited because I love Romans, I love just the language that we get to embrace and have about our salvation and, and how it works and and where we came from and where God's taking us. And as I jumped into Romans nine, I gotta confess, like it was there was nothing there. I was like, really, Lord? Like it's this is awesome. At least it could be hard, but it was like a veil, just like a blindfold. And and as I prayed, I. I realized that was a, a good humbling moment to be reminded that as close as I am to the text and, and to God's heart, many of you have, have yet to read Romans nine. And, and so I got to experience what maybe some of you are experiencing as you heard that for the first time going, what in the world, what is this? And, and interestingly, as I studied, I found out that pastors would actually go to seminary and go to training and, and part of their training, they would, they would be required to study Romans one through eight and that's it. And they'd send them out. Because ending with Romans 8 is wonderful. For someone that's so joyful and hopeful like me, it's like, yes, let's just end there. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. No height nor depth nor angels, nothing. It's awesome. We'll just end there. But Romans 9 through 11 is so intentional. It's so necessary, even today, and and for for those that are joining us, I'll, I'll give you a summary to, to catch you up on the first eight chapters. Don't worry, we will get out of here hopefully before Jesus comes back. Maybe not, but but I do want to get us caught up because the amazing word and the timing at which Paul wrote this letter it gives us it gives us a framework and it gives us the heart that I, I want us to to cling to because it's it's really the simple outline is. The people of God, the promises of God, the plan of God. We're going to work through that in the scripture today, and we'll end short, which I had to do some work in on my own to end at 18, and there's some good illustrations we'll get to next week. As we wrapped up chapter 19, but or chapter 9, but um, we see Paul's heart as we understand the context that that I even was was robbed of for, for a long time or maybe just forgot, but being reminded of the place of, of the church, the home churches in Rome. And after Pentecost, the spirit falls and everyone's in Jerusalem and they come home and they start these home churches and it's great. And then Claudius, the ruler in Rome expels the Jews for about five years. The church is run predominantly by Gentiles, and after about five years, the Jews come back into town. They're ready to go to church again. They're like, yeah, my father, my grandmother started Let's go to church. And the Gentiles in the home churches in Rome said, hey, what are you doing, Jew? We're 2.0. We've replaced you. Your synagogue's down the road. Get out of here. You don't belong here. You're not, you missed it. And so Paul hears of this, and he's like, man, How many churches are messed up? I gotta, and there was no YouTube or Twitter, or there's you know, there's it's like I gotta write a letter, and letters were expensive and they're time consuming, and then you gotta write them, then you gotta get them there and read them publicly. And I don't know if you your experience, but not many churches read the scriptures to give you a heads up of where you're going. It's like I hope the pastor knows where he's going. I don't know where he's going. And and even I've struggled and sometimes give you like 30 verses to cross-reference, and you're like, I've never done this. Where are we going? Hosea's in here? That's weird. Okay. I'll have to look at that later. It's more like Days of Our Lives, Jerry Springer. How'd that get in the Bible? That's super creepy and crazy. It's messed up. But we see Paul's looking at the messed up church that existed in the first century, and he pulls it in. You have to come back next week to see the Hosea reference. It leaked out. I tried my best. But... This week we're seeing how messed up the church was in Rome and and Paul's heart and he had to get into the nitty gritty. He had to get into the sin that that was grasping the Gentiles' hearts that was dividing the church and he calls them out on it but he does it the best way and I love the New Testament seeing it from all the division and dissension and even heresies or false teachings and and how people once taught true things are now teaching lies as truth and, and most people, you have to have great discernment now because we are moving into the end times where people are being deceived and falling away. And they didn't used to teach lies, and now they are. And and Paul gives us the example of making sure you're contending for the gospel, holding forth the gospel, and, and being reminded of the simple truth. And it's really how we behave reveals what we believe. And Paul believes the true gospel, and he's saying, you guys aren't behaving right. You need to let the Jews back in. What are you doing? And so that's why in verse 1 he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. Because Paul didn't start the church. He has no relationship with anyone. He just writes this letter. And and hopes that it will be read publicly, received, and that they would trust his words. And so if you've been with us the past eight chapters, this will be a good summary. If not, it will catch us all up. Chapter 1, wonderful chapter in Romans. Again, for people that are in American churches, we haven't maybe read or talked about what the culture is has free license to discuss and inform. And then you read the word and you're like, oh, they were dealing with this in the church right away. Chapter one. And so Paul's talking about the sins of the Gentiles. Uh, predominantly, he goes all the way down and says, look, when you're worshiping yourself, it goes from your self image in the mirror, not just taking pictures, posting how your body looks and focus on your belly button, but then it's your self worship, your sex self and homosexuality is the end result that we all will get to if God removes his hand off of us. Any constraint, we all worship ourselves. And, and for the American, you're like, wait, what? That's the end result? That's all. That's in all of us is sin and, and self-worship and maybe even to the extent of being attracted to the same self and homosexuality. And Paul's saying, yeah, that's in all of us. And the Gentiles, we, make, we find ways to make money off of it. We put sex everywhere. We have TV shows. We have movies. We, we monetize it. And then chapter 2, he goes, hey, Jews, you're not that much better. You just do it with the law. You sin, and you, and, you, and you make it respectable sins, and you make it a lawful sin, and it's based on works, but you're both equally lost. You're trying to earn satisfaction and earn God's pleasure or just earn your own enjoyment by either running away from God or trying to get God's approval. And then chapter 3, he says, look, all sinners, Jews and Gentiles, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Chapter 4, we see Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith, like Abraham, the founder of the faith. By God's grace, he calls Abraham, and by faith, Abraham is believing God for salvation, that he will send his son one day to die in his place. Be buried in the grave and write, wrote, risen from the dead for new life. In chapter five, we see the Holy Spirit comes in, and, and he mentions the Holy Spirit's need for the Jew and the Gentile together to be before they're equal before God and need God's saving grace. And, Chapter six, he talks about the backsliding Gentile who who goes back into sin and living for himself, living for the flesh. And then the Jew typically goes back into legalism that he talks about in chapter two. And then chapter seven, Paul reveals his own battle as a Jew with legalism. He's like, look, I'm not immune to this either. I struggle with legalism as well. And chapter eight is where we held up and hit pause before Christmas in the new year. And that's where he's saying, look, Jew and Gentile, to set your mind on the things of the flesh is death. But to set your mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. After he established, God put his Spirit in you. After you came out of the waters, this baptism, this new birth, this... God's spirit is now in you, sanctifying you, changing your thoughts and your desires and your words and your actions to be in line with Christ, as if Christ is in you, because he is. His spirit's in you. Isn't that wonderful? And that's where he ends chapter eight, no height nor depth, nothing created can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we see that love that Paul's experienced pushes him, motivates him, compels him, to write these words at great cost. And he's constantly having to to fight and persuade. And hey, I'm legit. I'm an apostle. Listen to these words. I'm not lying to you. This is true. And so he tells this church, you guys are missing it. You're keeping the Jews out. So we see he contends for the people of God. That's why he says in verse 1, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit's in me that's confirming these words and writing these words to you on that authority. Verse 2: that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is where I, I want us to, to start and end. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3: for I could wish that I myself be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He has this unceasing anguish and burden for the lost, for his brothers and sisters that were born of Jewish descent, and he wants them who are about to hear all the blessings and wonder that God gave them, and they missed it. And he's like, man, if I could just trade places with you, that'd be, I would do it. I'm not there yet. Like, I read that, and I kind of, that's my first trip. I'm like, whoa, what made... Saul, who was persecuting Christians now try and convert people to, to follow Christ and have this deep love that he would even be cut off from Christ, which he just told us in chapter eight, you can't, it's impossible. But he's saying, I wish this burden, this love I've received God's love. I've been transformed and I, I wish that I could even just trade places with you that you could be saved and I would be damned that I'd go to hell and you go to heaven. And this, this, this heart and this mind that he talks about in Philippians, to have the mind of Christ. Because Christ is the only one that was the perfect, that was the sacrifice, that was the one that actually did take our place. That if you're hearing this today, this is the gospel that completely transforms our minds, our desires, our actions, our thoughts and words is to have the mind of Christ that, that is compelled to, I'll take your place. Because that's what Jesus did. He took our place on the cross bearing the full weight and wrath of God. And that's why he says, look, in in 1 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. The the one that didn't have sin took our place, being damned, separated from God, so that we would have the righteousness of Christ, that we would never be separated. And that's what Paul's clean to, saying, this is the offer for you. This is what's on the table. Receive it, Gentile and Jew. You equally need the gospel There's no division now. We're one in Christ, the people of God. This is why he's so burdened and and has this anguish, because in verse 4, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, and the worship of the promises. These are the people of God. We see verses 1 through 5. The people of God are Israelites. They're adopted. They have glory, covenants, giving the law, worship, and the promises that have been given to them. And so often, when you just jump from chapter 8 to 12, which 12 is a great chapter, you miss the cultural moment. You miss the rebuke that he's giving to the church, saying, you guys are blowing it. The gospel was supposed to be coming to the Jews, but not stop to them, but go through them. It's supposed to, the gospel is supposed to flow through the Jews to the Gentiles, to the world. The, the Israel was blessed to be a blessing. And every time they stopped being a blessing, they got disciplined. And some people, as I was talking and, and God put some missionaries into different people. Someone was like, well, this is why Israel gets disciplined even today. Cause they're not being a blessing. Like, i like, that's speculative, but it's interesting because as you see in scripture, he's saying, look, when you stop being a blessing and even the church, when we stop being a blessing, when we so focus on figuring the blessing out and how the blessing got here in the beginning, instead of, Hey, God blessed me to bless others. That's it. Simple and clear. And Paul's like, guys, I've been blessed, I've been saved, I'll switch places with you. Do we have that heart? I don't. Maybe you don't. But maybe the the application is, are we moving in that direction? Has has the love of God been working on you and in you to see how the love of God can flow through you to those around you? And we see, he says in verse 4, the Israelites... And to them belong the adoption. And then verse five, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God overall, blessed forever, amen. He's saying, look, in verse three, Paul was willing to lose his salvation, trying to get them back. The Jews are the chosen ones. They have the great spiritual leaders, the forefathers, the Jewish people, the descent, even Jesus came from the line. Like you guys had every experience evidence, every opportunity to trust God, and then you just spit in Jesus' face and put him on a cross, why aren't you believing? He walked out of the grave and he says, look, every time you failed, I've forgiven, and I've been faithful when you're faithless. These are the people that God chose to reveal both his mercy and his judgment on. Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. This was God's promise to his people. So we see His argument identifies, look, the Jews are God's people. Secondly, these are the people that God made these promises to, verses 6 through 13. We see in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's saying, look, not all Jews are part in God's plan, and are receiving his promises, because not all of Abraham's family are children of God. God told Abraham in Genesis 21, only the family of Isaac will be called your family. This means that children born to Abraham are not all children of God, only those that are born of God's promise through Isaac. We see the prophecy here in verse 9 through 13. For what is... For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So there's this prophetic word. This time next year, Sarah's going to be pregnant with Isaac. We see verse 10 through 11, Rebecca had two sons, Esau and Jacob, and God knew what kind of men they would be before they were born. And when she conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Rebecca had Jacob and Esau. And we see the the service aspect of that flips the culture upside down. Because every time, and even the story of the prodigal son, the older would get two-thirds of the inheritance. The older had the blessings. The older would lead and the younger would serve. And yet God comes in and says, "Mm, I'm God, I do what I want. And I know that's the culture, but I get to do what I want. And so he says, look, the older is actually going to serve the younger, Genesis 25 Jacob represents God's chosen people. Esau represents those not serving God. We see this challenge in verse thirteen from a Western mindset of "What do you mean you get to love one kid and not the other? You love, we love all our kids equally." Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate it. It's this idea that he 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 doesn't d- despise. He, God doesn't delight in the death of a wicked. We need to understand God's heart here. But Esau never valued the things of God. He never valued his birthright. He's like, ah, soup, whatever. I'll sell my birthright. I just need some soup. And I'm, you know, I'll self made man. I'll just pull myself up by my bootstraps. He was like the first, like, American spirit of just, I'll do what I want, whenever I want, however I want, regardless of how, what the consequences are. Sure, I might be bummed out, but I'll figure it out. And then Jacob was just as evil and despicable and deceptive and lying. And if you know the story, it's, it's, you know, that we all have some things in common, maybe some more than most, but Jacob is one a, a wonderful picture of, of, a, of a good parenting lesson here. So if you're wondering, hey, how's this Romans 9? How am I going to apply this to my life? Here's a parenting side comment. How did God parent Jacob and Esau? It's interesting. When you look at Esau, God never disciplined him. He gave him Playstations, iPod. He gave him the blank checks, credit. Here you go. Do whatever you want. But Jacob was constantly being chased down, disciplined. The deceiver got deceived and God's like, "Ha, ah, sucker. How's it feel like? Look at all these people you're deceiving. Now you get deceived and God's constantly, he wakes him up in the middle of the night and wrestles with him. I mean, if there's not a very explicit, tangible expression of God's mercy and grace, he's wrestling with Jacob to wake him up to the reality of God. Saying you can't do life on your own and Jacob's tied up with them wrestling, which there's a funny other joke that's the first Biblical sport was wrestling. So anointed by God. So he's wrestling there and, and he's tied up and, and Jacob's like, ah, I'm not letting go until I get the blessing. God's like, wonderful, you're starting to get it. Except you need to be focused on the one who blesses, not the blessing that's given. And so he pops his hip out of his socket to make him dependent. And it's interesting and wonderful. And I want to, last thought here before we move on, because it's, it's help, God does not identify with Israel Going forward, with all the wonder and all the successes, he identifies as the God of Abraham, of God of Isaac. Abraham's just as messed up. Isaac, not that great. Jacob, horrible. The deceiver. And God's like, I'm the God of all these losers. Do you want to follow me? I'm, you're going to be my people. That's how God represents, that's how he introred himself. No one does that. How do YouTube and podcasts and, hey, the bio, uh, I'm a loser following the God of losers. You want to follow? He redeems my story. You want a second chance? That's wonderful. That's why when we read Romans 1 and all of the sins that Paul lays out, liar, murderer, adulterer, these are who you were. But then God sanctified you. He justified you. He's made you new. We have a God of second chances. And he always identifies himself. Hey, I'm the God of these losers. You can read there. It's, it's a mess. Look at how I've been working with them. Look at my mercy. And that's why Paul's saying, guys, how arrogant and prideful are you Gentiles to not let the Jews in when God chose them? You're going to tell God, hey, you messed up. Like we're 2.0. Forget the 1.0 version. We're way more improved and better. We got this. Just sit back and watch us run church, God. Thanks again for the salvation. Paul's like, no, you're one in Christ. You need God, the God who calls you, the God who saved you, the God who elected you. We didn't elect God or choose God. God chose us. And so that's why he's telling the church this. And he says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Which is the plan of God. Many argue, well, if 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 God loves Jacob and, and hates Esau, he, he he it's comparison. He he loves Jacob more than he loves Esau, and so we see this. Well, is there anything unfair? What's the plan of God? How does God accomplish this? And we see this this amazing question that Paul knows that many of you would be asking and he says in verse 15 for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And the psalmist the Psalm 119 137 writes, righteous are you O Lord and right are your rules. Righteous are you O Lord and right are your rules. God's always right. When he shows mercy and love and compassion he's right and when he shows judgment and wrath he's right. He's always right to accomplish his purpose and And we see in verse 15, quoted out of Exodus 33, I get to choose who I love and put loving pity on. I get to to love who I want to love and have mercy on who I want to have mercy on. And any of us, at times, when we wrestle with this text in particular and this idea and this doctrine of God choosing and electing, it's hard for us, especially Americans, who we want to think we get to choose and we get to have control. That maybe God's unjust in this way. But whatever question in our mind about predestination, that God's not fair, we see the second thing a person says usually to follow up that question is, well, isn't it unfair that God chose one son, not the other? Isn't it not fair that God chose, well, it's really not fair that God chose any at all. Because we all deserve hell. We all deserve God's wrath. And, and the clearest and simplest way that I, I've heard it is like ACDC, ACDC said, we're all on the highway to hell. That's our reality. We're all spiritually dead that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. And and God in his mercy is on that highway saying, the exit's right here. I walked out of the grave, just just go right here. And we hear it and he allows us to be regenerated, sees our need, we see the savior and we respond. And that's the picture that Paul's saying, look, everyone was going to hell, God chose the Jews to be the conduit of his blessing to bless the nations and to bring salvation. And we see that the, another picture that, that actually Jesus gives us in Matthew 20, it's a picture of the, 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 the vineyard owner and he goes to Home Depot early in the morning to get supplies and he grabs workers and says, hey, I got a whole day's worth of work, come work for me. And they say, yeah, this is awesome, I need to feed my family. He's like, perfect, I'll feed your family, come work for me. And like you do when you're working, you have to go to Home Depot multiple times. So he goes multiple times to Home Depot and every time he picks up more workers. Because there's a lot of work, and he's like, man, so it's noon, it's 3 o'clock, it's 5 o'clock. I'm like, what kind of work? Yeah, vineyard people work all kinds of hours, I found out. So there's all this work to be done, and people show up at the last hour, put in the little cleanup. You know, they're cleaning the little harvesting, pruning, you know, sharpening the tools for the next day. And, and then it comes time for payout, and everyone lines up, and he's paying them the same rate, full day's worth of work. And the guy just finishes up. He gets to sharpen maybe two tools, and the other guy's been there all day long. And and they look at and they're like, wait, you got paid the same amount for sharpening two shears that I got for a whole day's, my back's killing me. And and he goes to the vineyard owner and is like, what's the deal? What do you mean what's the deal? Didn't you get your pay? Yeah, I got paid for a full day, but so did Jerry over there and he sharpened two shears. You got full day's pay for two shears? What kind of a job is this? What kind of boss are you? And he's like, hey, is your family going to get fed tonight? And is Jerry's family going to get fed tonight? This is my money. Who do you think you are? Tell me what, what to do with my money. I'm Blessing you, I I get to choose who gets the mercy. All the other people at Home Depot didn't get any work, and they don't get to feed their family tonight. And you do. You should be rejoicing that you've received God's mercy. And that again brings us back to the initial part where Paul's saying, "I'm in so much anguish, and my soul's twisted. I want to trade places with you. I want you to have God's mercy. It is so good and so wonderful. And I didn't deserve it. I didn't choose it. Somehow I'm receiving it." And I want you to receive it. And that's what compels us. That's what propels us to go and reach those who've yet to hear. And well, Paul's preparing us to get there. I I get too excited. That's chapter 11 into 12. And, And even chapter 10. And we see this perfect picture in verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. And thank the Lord he has mercy. Because there's nothing you or I could ever do to impress him to give us or grant us his mercy. Because mercy is defined by not giving someone what they deserve. We deserve hell. We deserve his full wrath because of our disobedience. And he gives us mercy. Grace is giving us something we don't deserve. Grace is salvation. Grace is saying you deserve hell, but I'm not going to give you hell. I'm going to give you grace, which is Jesus on the cross in your place. Him walking out of the grave like he promised to give you new life. And now I'm giving you the spirit to walk in and to have power over dominion and darkness and, and, and devils. And I'm going to give you the ability and the desire to, to serve and build my kingdom. That's grace. And we see the personality That God gives gifts or chooses people according to his foreknowledge. It's, It's his will. And according to his plan, verse 17, it says, For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If anyone is power hungry or needs their power to be displayed, and it's okay, it's God. You know, our, our world is falling apart, politics, everything, every time I hear something, it's like, wow, that's more challenging, that's going to make it difficult, and, and they're, they're protecting the criminals, and they're criminalizing the people, they're trying to help people, and there's a pastor who's being sued up the wazoo for housing homeless in the church, and, and it's headline after headline, I'm like, wow, this this is a wonderful time to be a Christian, because when the darkness of the world gets darker, the light of the gospel shines brighter, and as we read the scripture, it's so much more clear for, for kids and youth to see the truth of the gospel. The challenge is, are you discipling your kids and your grandkids? Are you bringing the gospel to them as Paul's saying, guys, we need everyone to see God's power. Because in the world, there's all these other lies of, hey, do this, say this, you can get this, or just just believe what we want, to, want you to believe and do what we want you to do, and then you'll have an easy life. Instead of the God of the Bible and the power and his glory that he wants the whole world to know about. In Romans chapter 1, go back to the beginning, Satan wants to, to cover up the truth with the lie. He wants to ex- exchange the truth for a lie and call the lie truth. And that's the culture and the time we're in. So we have our work cut out for us, but we don't have to worry because God is sovereign. We don't get to choose how and when. We know that God's already chosen and God's already planned it. Just like he did with Pharaoh. When all the Israelites were like, dude, our life is over. They're crying out to God for 430 years. It's miserable. Moses shows up, the murderer. They're like, oh, the murderer's back in town. Girl, great. We need a savior, God. We need a redeemer, someone to lead us out of this place. And Moses is like, hey, I hung out with God. It was a burning bush thing. They're like, dude, now Moses is a murderer and a pothead. Or he's on shrooms. Who knows what this guy's on. Like, get him out of here. We got work to do tomorrow morning. Moses was like, dude, no, seriously, I didn't do this LACD trip or whatever. It's legit. You guys, we can leave right now. And they're like, we can't leave right now. We have work at 5 a.m. Get out of here, Moses. They could have left. That's the most crazy verse. I'm like, what? Dude, you could be gone. Like, you're out of there. No, we have bricks to build for, for Pharaoh. Four and thirty years are crying out. God sends I'm like, no. Like, yep, God revealed how stubborn we are through the Jews. Thank you, Lord, I'm that bad and that stubborn to not hear your voice, as simple and clear as it is. And yet he lovingly gave Pharaoh mercy 10 times to repent, and yet 10 times he hardens his heart, and God's like, all right, then I'm fully gonna harden your heart by releasing any constraint. Romans 1, we're that evil and that depraved and that hard-hearted to run away from God, even when all the evidence is in our face, we can still not choose. And that's why it's because of God's mercy and mercy and choosing. That we sit back and wonder in amazement. That he displays his power for his purpose to save. That it would be proclaimed in all the earth. And the other part of that, why Paul brings it up is, hey, you know when the Jews left Egypt, they didn't leave only with the Jews. They brought other Gentile Egyptians with them. How many Egyptians got saved because they saw Pharaoh hardened his heart, and how wondrous and merciful God is that they might be saved through that experience. So we see his ultimate plan being fulfilled. And then we see verse 17, God uses Pharaoh to carry out his work. And then verse 18, God's will is above our understanding. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's a hard verse for us. Because we know people who God's hardened. We know people who's hardened their heart against God. And thankfully, Isaiah helps us with some language. in verse 55, chapter, chapter 55, verse eight, "My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways, my ways," declares the Lord. And I, and I want to land at a place today, because reading this is hard. Reading this even like I shared with you, reading it and being like, I don't know what, I don't know what the burden is. I don't know what the purpose of this is today, Lord. And it was right in the beginning. It's I want to trade places with you. I've experienced God's mercy, His mercy. I've been knocked on my behind because the glory of the Lord showed up and was like, "Why are you persecuting me?" I mean, people are like, "I just need a sign." I, I, I'm in, deeply in sin. I just need a sign, and God gave you that through through Paul, and He's saying, "I want to trade places with you." I know the sin that you struggle with. I I know the challenge you have. I know the arrogance you have. You don't want Jews to come into your church, but you're supposed to be united in Jesus. God calls us to be one people. Why are you keeping the Jews out? He's writing this whole letter to contend for the gospel and because of the gospel and to see how we were saved, we have no right to tell God who can come in and who can't. We have no right to say no, no, no. But we also have every obligation to defend the gospel and to to say this is what the gospel calls us to love like this and we don't understand how it's working in people's lives and that breaks that should break our heart and move us to compassion as we see that God said to Moses I have mercy and compassion on whom I have mercy and compassion on and we can see as we stand here that that God has free will and he's the only being that has free will. There's nothing that influences God to the left or right. But us, even psychologists, said we are so heavily influenced with social media, with family, with genetics, with friends, with emotions. Everything's influencing us. And thankfully, God is not one to be influenced. He, he has free will. And, and the, the, the challenge of this that, that's been read into these scriptures and as we see the, the support elsewhere in scripture that, God doesn't want and he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked and he wants all to be saved in first Timothy 2 he's praying for that that's the heart of God and and the most damaging thing I'll never forget I was a youth pastor and, and there was a young lady that you know wasn't the most modest in in dress and and just was struggling with the flesh and like a true gentile just anything she could do she did and and publicized it and and so she went, went to church and this guy was like hey and called her out, and, and this guy was like, well, God chooses people for heaven and chooses people for hell. And he clearly chose you for hell because you don't desire the things of God. And it's this, this lie of, of double predestination. And if you've, read, if you've read Romans 9, you've heard me, that's not in there at all. It's, it's everyone deserves to be disappointed, to be sent to hell, but out of God's mercy, he allows us to see and hear, and he's slow to anger. And his mercy continues day and day. And so the heart of Paul is, man, I want to trade places with you. Man, I want to pray for you. How can I help you see God's mercy? How can I help you see God's power and his love for you and the purpose he has for you? And let's let's walk with you. I want to pray for you. Not be the one to declare judgment. And we know the... The thoughts are not our thoughts. So why would we arrogantly have the same posture the Gentiles had against the Jews towards people who are different than us or people that aren't maybe as good as we think they could be? And it's that heresy. It's that lie that comes up that, nope, I'm going to tell you where you're going to end in eternity. It's like, whoa, whoa, Paul didn't even go there. Like of all the people that could have maybe hit, Paul doesn't go there. He just says, this is who God is, this is the people he's called, these are the, the promises, and this is the plan, and we've seen the evidence, so why are you shutting the door and telling the Jews they can't come in and fellowship? Why are you telling people, hey, God's actually unchosen you, when he gets to choose who he wants, and he gets to have mercy on who he wants, like, what are you doing? And so, it's a it's a grace-filled rebuke to the Gentiles, and we can have those, and we need to have, especially in the church, of Pursuing unity, helping everyone see clearly what the truth is of God's love. And understanding, man, there's people that I never even thought that was a thing. Even after getting my master's degree in theology, having this youth leader say that to that girl, and we're like, oh my goodness, what? Let's, let's look through the scriptures again. And yep, sure enough, God does not delight in the death of the way. He, he asks, he, Paul's like, man, we got to pray for everyone that they might believe. And Paul's even going to the extent of, I will go to hell so you can go to heaven. Is that your heart towards your your son or daughter or neighbor or boss who doesn't yet believe? Are you like, man, I'll trade places with you? Because that's the mind of Christ. That's the heart of Christ that says, I've come to to serve and not be served. I'm going to take your place. That really challenges me and my mindset that that Paul knew that we would object to this. And and so he gives us these evidences as as we question this and push on it. But the wonderful thing is that Israel is, is the perfect picture of both God's mercy and God's judgment. And we see most clearly in that picture our need for Jesus. And so as we experience God's love, does it move us to share with others? And as I was thinking through how to wrap this up, I was encouraged to see God working. And, and, and like I said, I don't know if this happens to you, but it happens to me all the time. I have to apologize for my wife and kids. We'll go in. Like yesterday, I went in to get some chicken feed. Normally it takes, I think, people two minutes, maybe like 20 minutes for me to get chicken feed because there happens to be someone that walks in and we're talking. I know her from past, you know, in ministry. And she's like, man, this is a crazy world. Like my friend's son just came out as gay and and he's got three choices. Like, how are we going to do this? And this is so crazy. What the school system's a mess. And what do we do with this? And I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, this is the best time to be alive. Because the gospel is so clear. You, you have these fake Christians and, and, and ministries making money and, and, and kind of walk on this fine line just leading people into confusion. But we have the perfect time to come alongside people and care for them and say, no, the gospel has an answer for that. The God is Jesus. And it doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, it's, it's challenging, but we have to be standing on the word of God to understand how we love people and if we have actually been saved. And so I think every time I get to chapters like these and deal with stuff, it's like, man, am I really a Christian? Has God really changed my heart? Like, am I going to church to to use the gifts God's given me because I really love people and want to serve people and help them know the true God and know that love, and then that love will compel them to go love others? And are are we willing to engage in these conversations? Do we know people and know the stuff they're dealing with and to point them back to the gospel and say, well, Paul talks a lot about adulterers, and I'm like, you're there's other sinful things in your life that you can't judge but thankfully god's mercy and grace has been given to each one of us from adulterers liars murderers thieves and said look the gospel got in there and transformed you that's not who you are anymore that's who you were and the beauty and the power is it's not just this group it's all over the world and and jesus said to go to the entire world and preach the gospel meaning that all the things that, whether they're in public or private, the gospel is going to call to surrender and, and, and allow Jesus to change. And we see in, in India, this church has grown from 24 to 300,000 members. And the pastor said, look, I just preach the word and we practice the word. That's what we do. I just preach the word and practice the word. And Pastor Satish Kumar, they pre- he preaches at five services. And this guy in his church in India, said, "Lord, if you heal me, I'll serve you." And God healed him. And so he's serving. He's led. He leads 150 volunteers every morning. They get up at 4 a.m. and they make meals—breakfast, lunch, and dinner—for 50,000 people. And, and God's just using it and just growing this ministry. And I always think about like numerically the impact because. In America, we're just vast land with very little people and few animals. But in India, it's so highly densely populated, 1.4 billion people. And to see the Spirit of God fall and for the Word of God to be preached and to God to save. All over the world, the Spirit's moving. So when we face persecution, because that's what came, right? That's what we've been talking about. The interviewer said, all right, well, there's persecution coming because a bunch of Hindus are getting machetes and hacking up Christians and killing Christians and burning churches down all over India and and the militant persecutions. And he's like, oh, we we know it's there and it's coming. But every time persecution comes, the church keeps growing. And and so it truly is what we've said, what's been said before, the blood of the martyrs is, is... waters the seed of the gospel and, and, the, and it grows. And so as we think about where we're going from here today, what in the world does Romans 9 have? We're not, killing, we're not kicking Jews out of our church. We're, we're trying to figure out this unity and there's maybe some little disunity conversation, but not big ones like that. Like, what's this about? It's about the mercy of God and allowing God to be God. And he gets to have mercy on whom he will. And he's going to call up people and, and when we've experienced God's love, is that moving you to share it with others? Or are you content just hearing about it? I mean, like a constipated Christian, just continuing to intake, but there's no outtake. There's no, in a better way, that's a little, you know, lack of better words. But like, are you actually going out and serving? Do people know that you've experienced God's love and you're blessing other people? It's a better acronym we've used, right? Are you beginning in prayer are you listening? Are you eating, having a meal with one another? Are you serving one another? Are you sharing the gospel with your neighbors? Let's start there probably for most of you that call yourselves the Christians. Do you know your neighbors? If you were to do a tic-tac-toe diagram on a napkin at lunch or at home and, and plot your neighbors' names around you to your right and left, behind you, the upper right and left corners, the lower right and left corners in front of you. Do you know those people? Might be awkward if you've been living there for twenty years and you don't. A couple tips: maybe you could use the Amazon uh, delivery pirate. Hey, there's some pirates going on stealing packages. When you're out of town, you could let me know. I'll keep them for you. I'm your neighbor, I'm Brandon. I've lived here thirty years. I don't know you. It's kind of hey, just I'm a Christian. I kind of should know you. You like be creative, but it starts there, and that's where I love landing with. Paul's heart was for the Jews, was for his brothers and sisters of nationality. Do do you even know your neighbors' names? Do you know what hobbies and challenges they're facing to pray for them? Maybe we start there. But it starts today as the communion's passed. Have you experienced God's love? Maybe for the first time you're realizing, man, yeah, this world's crazy and there's really no hope. Like, it's not my job, 401k, relationships, all that could be taken. Like, what's really lasts is eternity and do I have a relationship with God? Has God's love gripped me in a way that's, that's compelled me to lay down and surrender and to say, you know what? Without you, I have no hope. And you've called me to go and share the love that you've offered me that I would see people turn and believe and be saved. And so maybe today is the first time you're realizing that Jesus died in your place, that you're a sinner and need a savior. And he walked out of the grave to give you a new life and put his spirit in you, that your heart would beat for him. And he's calling you to go and share. And Paul's saying, look, God had mercy on whom he has mercy, compassion on whom he has compassion. And for the believers, as we have these elements passed out, this is a reminder that we've experienced God's love. And it's to move us to share that love with others around you. So let's reflect on how God's been merciful to you, gracious and chosen you and saved you and relish in that. like, wow, I'm so undeserving. Now, who are you calling me to go and and share that testimony and display your love and your power and your mercy that you would save even a wretched sinner like me? And I'll come up and and close us in that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word that's humbled us, that's reminded that we didn't choose you, elect you, we didn't put you on your throne. You're already there before creation. And you chose us. You, you chose this day for us to be reminded of your power and your purposes and the people you called initially and you people like us, you've, you've grafted in and, and joined in your family as sons and daughters that we would go and proclaim and go and testify of your name and how you, Jesus, have changed each one of our lives who have believed. Who are saved and and that we would have a heart and mind like Christ, that that if any way we could, or anything we could do to, to convince or persuade people that your power and your son, it's all salvation is only found in Jesus and in him alone. Lord, that we would, like Paul said, I would love to just be a curse and switch places with you if it's possible. Would we have that motivation after we've experienced your love that we would go and share it, and make it known to our neighbors, our community, our state, our country, and our world. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would move us and direct our steps. Everything we say, think, and do would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.